Language can be liberating when it accurately names and describes and experience a sensation, a reality, but it can also become a prison. We forget that language often functions like a fence, a border, a boundary that limits what we think is possible. Having grown up overseas, I've experienced this. There is a side, a fiery, feisty side of my personality that can come out in Spanish that I can't replicate in English. doesn't have enough force or freedom, I guess. So paying attention to how language creates and limits our reality and how language in turn gives birth to certain ideas that limit our reality is crucial in the territory of unknowing. We must become the kind of people who are curious about the glasses that we're wearing on our faces, the lenses through which we are looking at reality at any given point, the philosophical hue that is coloring our lenses, the religious tint that we've got on there, the frame of our familial upbringing, our historical ancestral lineages, Becoming curious about all of those things is to recognize that as helpful as some of those frames are, that is not the whole picture. And so as we become curious about those influences, we can also detach ourselves from our dependency on them as we move bravely into, to quote today's guest, Bayo Akamolafe, these wilds beyond our fences to move into the wilds beyond our fences. I want to have the courage to go there, don't you? Now, if you follow me on social media, you realize that I am a die-hard Bayo Okomolafe fan. I mean, like, big time. I read his book, These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, like a Bible, like poetry, for the course of a year and a half over the pandemic, um, and I cannot recommend his work enough. Dr. Bayo Akumolafe is an author, a lecturer, a philosopher, a speaker, and in his words, a proud diaper changer. Bayo curates an earthwide project for the recalibration of our ability to respond to civilizational crisis, a project framed within a feminist ethos and inspired by indigenous cosmologies. I mean, come on, people. He was born in Nigeria and lives in India now with his wife and his two children. And I am so excited to share this conversation with you on episode three of Unknowing with Bayo Akumalafe. So, Bio, I am just extraordinarily geeked out to have you on the show. And I already told you this, but everybody that knows me knows how much I love your work and how much your work has meant to me. So I've been doing my best to like calm down, <laughs> feel my feet on the ground, just be prepared for this conversation because I'm just so thrilled to be speaking with you. So thank you so much for being on Unknowing today. It's my pleasure to be here and grateful. Thank you. So I usually begin these conversations. You know, the show is all about this intersection of spirituality and creativity, um, particularly around unknowing, around the central role of letting go of what we think we know to make room for what could be. So I usually begin these conversations by asking about the map that was given to you in childhood, the lens with which to make sense of reality. So what constituted that set of parameters and arrival points when you were growing up? Thank you, Bree. Um, I grew up largely within the territoriality of Christianity, Pentecostal Christianity. And so I'd grown up in Nigeria, in the southwest of Nigeria. I grew up in a family, in a home that took for granted the idea that I was created by a supreme deity. And Jesus is the most emblematic expression of this deity. And my work was to live life in a way that was righteous and pure and you might know the drill i'm familiar <laughs> you're familiar good okay so i don't need to explain the abcs of it 
And so this was my guiding principle. This is my node star. This was my map for taking me into my teenage years, some, maybe even well into my 20s. It was the only way that I framed and understood politics, emancipation, what it meant to be human, mm. um, my quest for understanding psychology. I remember the reason why I wanted to study psychology is because I wanted to find out an experimental way of detecting the soul, wow. right? Uh, and I actually put in, I was going to become a cognitive neuroscientist, but the technology and the apparatus and the infrastructure for that kind of research wasn't available in my country. So I settled for clinical psychology, but I was after the kind of evidence that would shut the mouths of all naysayers, right? Everyone that doubted my way of being or my point of view, I was after the truth. I had a motto growing up that was, uh, what did I call it again? Because I was this hyper nerdish kid. I didn't have a social life, didn't really have friends, except they were useful to my research interests, even as an undergrad. Um, so I had, a, I had a motto, I think, truth and love, but in Latin. I had it written everywhere in my room, on my wall, veritas a, yeah, veritas a something, I forget. <laughs> And it, it was my guiding light. And, um, uh, well, the, the part of the story that I will transit from here and give it back to you, the reins back to you, but um, along the way, I lost truth mm. or, or truth fell. It held me by the hand and one day it just disappeared or it composted itself and became this marvelous, you know, fairy land of absurd impossibilities. And that's why I'm still dwelling. That is exactly where I want to go next, because I want to dive into that moment of truth composting itself into something other. Can you identify what was happening around your life? When was it? You know, I know it's hard to pinpoint, but what were the circumstances going on in the background that you remember in that moment of moving beyond, because I know you write about this a lot in your book, These Wilds Beyond Our Fences. And yeah. it's that moment of recognizing that that concept of truth, that map almost dissolved in your hands and gave way to something, as you said, marvelous, mysterious other. But what was happening? What do you feel like precipitated that moment? I, I think it's a mix of boredom and circumstance. Boredom is, I think, readily obvious, and I don't need to go deep into that, even though I think it's more interesting than it presents itself in popular conversation. But um, I was raised largely within a Christian, outside of my family, I mean, I went to a Christian university. And it was here that I felt permitted to, to be my most Christocentric nerdish self. I wrote a book called Faith or Reason. And it wasn't supposed to be a book. It was supposed to be a speech. Now, this is a private university, the first of its kind. I was one of the first students in the first batch in this university. So it was a new experiment in Christian universities. And this is in the early 2000s. And as an undergrad, you know, no one knew how to navigate stuff. It was a very rigid compartmentalized, regimented society of lecturers and students who were mandated to stay on campus, mm. you know, and to dress in ties and suits. There you go. Because we were, we were modeling after Oral Roberts University in the United States. Jeez. It was supposed to be a carbon copy of Oral Roberts and just transplanted to Nigeria. And the chancellor was quite clear about this. Mm. Um, so I rose very quickly within this highly regimented society into a student leader and I was planning to give a speech a public lecture I was already teaching in classroom taking the space of my some of my lecturers when they had to be somewhere else so I was that hyper nerdish annoying person that you wouldn't have wanted to hang out with Brie um, <laughs> and but the, the lecture quickly in my writing it quickly became a book it became 206 pages I'll never forget the page numbers as a sophomore, I wrote 206 pages of exploration into faith and reason and Mount Ararat and where Noah's Ark supposedly 
is right now, if only we get the chance to see it and how cells uh, are evidence of intelligent design, you know, and aspects of the bacteria and creationism is more superior to the Darwinian nonsense. And it was all of all of that. And Hardcore. I was gonna, Hardcore stuff. It, it didn't happen. I, I don't know why it didn't happen. I think the university really wanted me to prune the lecture. I couldn't give 206 pages within two hours or an hour. I guess what I'm trying to demonstrate here or, or make evident is that this quickly became boring for me in particular. And maybe legacies that I cannot speak of that are part of the, the coalition of agencies that I rudely call myself. We're at work, but somehow I got bored. And in a sense, we can speak of that as desire is rhizomatic and territorial. And there's something negative about desire and almost impossible that when you grab what you always wanted, then you don't want it anymore. I don't know if you feel that way. Mm. Like mm. you're in the office space and you're like, oh, damn it, I really wish I could be at home right now. And you're at home and I, you're like, I really wish I could be in the office right now, just get some time to do some work and be productive. You know, that kind of thing, like the impossibility of desire. And desire is always spinning away from final grasp. Mm. I guess being raised in that kind of community with hyper rules and hyper rigid doctrines, um, it, kind of, it kind of pushed me to the edge. And I started to ask new questions about, wait a minute, if you're going to claim that, Jesus and Christianity is about helping the poor and benevolence and all of that and being compassionate. How come just a few people are exceedingly wealthy within the community and there are lots of poor people hanging about and we just drive by in rich cars and it, it doesn't seem to me like an expression of what I feel deeply called to commit to. And so that began my, my fall, my fall away from the throne. It is a sensation of the experience of moving beyond one's map is a free fall, yeah. I think. It's a feeling yeah. of falling through. And as I'm listening to you speak, I wonder about what the relationship is. You know, of different scriptures have said things like, you know, those who really manifest what is within them, what is within, you know, this is from the Gospel of Thomas, what is within you will save you. And I I wonder at the mystery of zealotry, of really giving yourself wholly to something, if, if that's not somehow part of the process of falling through, that without yeah. that wholehearted belief, you don't get to the point where you exhaust the parameters of that map in some ways and become bored to then fall through into something else. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about that, you know, and I, I love what you said about desire as being perpetually elusive and necessarily so. Yeah. Yeah, the way I put it, I can't, I can't quite capture the poetic way that I framed it in my journal in the university. But I think I told myself, I used to have, and this is probably something I'm sharing for the first time on a podcast with anyone, but I was so deep into this thing, yes, you named it right by calling it zealotry, that I had an imaginary mentor from Palestine <laughs> who was uh, an Islamic scholar. Right. Now, at this time, I was already wanting to move beyond the edges that had been imposed upon me. Uh -huh. So I was imagining friends, you see. Yeah. So this should tell you a, a little bit more about my life those days. I was imagining friends and I was writing every day to this Islamic scholar that I, for no intelligent reason, named Flavius Josephus. <laughs> and I wrote to him every day with about my battles with faith and how... Mm. The knowledges and the assumptions, presumptions about how the world works imposed upon me, seemingly imposed upon me. They didn't seem to meet my desires for mm -hmm. a new kind of way of being in the world. And he would write back to me. Of course, I would write back right. to myself. Absolutely. Uh, hopefully. Yeah. You know the drill. Okay. <laughs> um, we were much more alike than I thought. Oh, yeah. What you, when you first started, you're like, this should give you an idea of the state I was in. I'm like, I am currently still in a state in which I imagine conversations fully, very articulate conversations with people yes. that are, you know, so I, yes, yes, I yes. understand. <laughs> you, you were right there, just in the same frequency. <laughs> so I, I think I told myself, I wrote it somewhere, that if you travel within a 
field or a landscape and you lean on the fence long enough, then you might burst into other fields of being. It's like I had eaten enough and the place wanted me to leave. Mm. It's, it's time to go. It had its own agency. And it wasn't just the ruminations or the dynamics within me. It is that the place was tired and exhausted and also wanted me to go. Like Christianity could not meet my emerging needs. That is, it's so profound because there's something about, and, and you talk about this in your book, and I want to spend a little bit of time digesting this idea because it, right. it's new to many people. The ways in which we have a fallacy of thinking of epochs as distinct and neat and clear chapters yeah. that move, yeah. move in a linear way. And so we frame our lives in the same way. And we think about ourselves and moving in that kind of linear pattern in a very sequential way. But the way you just described, the territory itself was tired. It wasn't just you. The problem, yeah. like you're not the problem. There's something that you had exhausted in both the territory and in yourself with that frame that yes. urged you to move to new places. So could you give us like a 101 explanation from a human standpoint, philosophy standpoint, why are we stuck thinking about epochs as being so clean and like little boxes, like A to B, B to C, C to D? Like, why do we think that way? How did we get there? Well, it's convenient. And it's largely because we have given language so much power. Mm. Like language does the task of arranging for us the world into consumable bits and pieces. And it helps us categorize. And I do want to say language as if language were a monolithic enterprise. Language interacting with modernity and industrialized societies and workplace conditions and, you know, um, salaries and furniture and ideologies. I, I can't begin to trace out all the, all the things implicated in this cartography. But it seems a particular assemblage uh, structures the world by centralizing human beings. And so it's very counterintuitive for us to think that the world is alive beyond us, especially those of us who grew up and grow up within urban settings. Mm. It's like it, the world is increasingly user-friendly, instrumental, only there for our purposes. Within that kind of space, it's very difficult to think that things spill in, in ways or to frame faith or the loss of faith as the activity of faith or the territory that is supposed to, one is supposed to be faithful to. And it's, a, it's very difficult is what I'm trying to say. And, and maybe that's the reason why we're stuck because the conditions do not render it plausible mm -hmm. for thought to travel in that way. So it's a carceral dynamic. Mm -hmm. We're incarcerated within a space where we must think we're compelled by these cybernetic patterns to think only in terms of what's good for us, what it's expressible by language, and what we can colonize as a result of mastery. Mm. But the world is big, bigger than grammar, and that's what we're learning today. It's so huge to me what you just described. I mean, that's the fundamental premise of this whole show, really. This releasing, relinquishing, surrendering the colonial deterministic impulse to claim, possess, describe, no. It's like we're slapping labels and values on everything and trying to create a false sense of order around them. And then we wonder why we operate the way that we do as human beings when, like you said, it's like this causal system that we're sort of stuck in the loop in. And, you know, one of the things that I'm exploring on the show, Bio, is the relationship between spirituality and creativity and art uh -huh. and uh -huh. the ways in which thinking in artistic terms can help us maybe maybe not completely leave behind that causal system of needing to determine and define everything but maybe relax it a little bit and um i know that you draw and paint and that you studied one of my favorite artists picasso and how african art inspired his cubism and yeah um you talk about the aesthetic reconsideration of our addiction to the story as being all, you know, the, the need to have like the narrative logic plot and scheme. And you describe it as this, you know, somewhat unhealthy habit of modernity. So this is one of the things that we've become addicted to through modernity is that story is all. So yeah. how can art 
invite us to see our lives and reality as non-linear? Oh, beautiful, beautiful question. Um, a while ago, a colleague wrote to me by email and said, how about we get rid of the word body, body, <laughs> right? And replace it with a body in, mm-hmm. right? A body with an ING. And her point basically is that I would express it in this way that morphology, the shapes that we assume, the anthropomorphic shapes that we, you know, the bipedalism that we're used to when we identify or standardize what it means to be human, right? It does not precede movement, right? Mm -hmm. We think of the world in these two things. Here's the shape and now it moves. Here's the organism and now it moves. Here's the organism and now it thinks, um, so it's very Euclidean. It's a very, very stable whole container space where holes are determined and parts are within those holes. Um, but in a processual, relational, lonely, fluid world, holes are not static mm-hmm. um, and parts are not static. Things flow into each other in ways that escape, exceed, and mock language, mm. right? So even... The organism is no longer distinct from the organism's movement. Anticipation is now part of the organism. Movement is how the organism becomes embodied. In other words, movement is embodied. Mm-hmm. To see from the, from the perspective of movement is to see how organisms crisscross each other so that the oxpecker is the rhino. It's not distinct from the rhino. We can draw lines, but those lines are always dependent or codependent with other entanglements. We don't appear in the world static and still. We're ecstatic, right? We're migrant. We're migrant bodies. We're bodies, rather. That's why I love the performing arts, Mm -hmm. you know, dance and how it expresses bodies as movements, Mm -hmm. how it disturbs tropes with which we see the world. Mm -hmm. Sci-fi is another wonderful arena. It's a reframe. And I think what needs to happen are these reframes. Mm -hmm. They're gifts, really. Reframes are not human impositions. They're not largely explainable by cultural formulations. They are made possible by topographical shifts, Mm -hmm. like shifts in the materialities of the world at large that force us to think in different ways. This is the reason why Deleuze spoke about thinking as becoming monstrous, right? Like to think is to become monstrous. There's something about thinking that is discontinuous, that is a shock and that is surprising. So I feel that art, art defined in that modern sectoral way that we used to define in it, um, art performs that function of releasing us from the incarceration of our imaginations. It, it, it works with us to defeat the static modes of thinking that we're used to. It reframes possibility. And that is why the, the scientists and the writers that I love so much always borrow and refer to and work with art. And the the emphasis that you're placing on movement is also Mm -hmm. one of relationality, of constant interplay and intersectionality and intimacy in movement, in creativity, in the act of becoming, which, you know, when I think about some of the most powerful reframes in my life was discovering a mystic by the name of Teilhard de Chardin and the way that he described all of life, all of reality as this constant unfolding evolutionary process, process-based truth yeah. unfolding in yeah. relationship. Um, and then reading in the words of Beatrice Bruteau, who was a student of his, that she said, very similar to what you're saying about bodying, she said, no, we cannot say the word God, we must say Godding, and we ourselves are the act of Godding. And this infinite reframe that is so huge that puts us in a place of relationality is so uncomfortable for so many people (laughs) to move into. And I want to talk about that discomfort because part of what happens when we move into that, when we fall through that, that map of the uh, God is in control frame or that kind of deterministic value frame or the idea of holes as being separate and parts belonging to the whole frame. Right. Anytime we fall through that architecture or that blueprint, there's this sense of chaos 
initial sense of chaos. And I want to talk about that because there's a scene in your book when your daughter asks you to play, Alethea asks you to play, but there was clutter everywhere. <laughs> and you get flustered. And you ask her, to, so you clean up and you ask her to clean up too. And the scene gets me because I can think of countless times with my two sons when I I've been in that spot where my insane obsession with order has gotten in the way of presence and play. But you talk about the myth of modernity as kind of us against dust. Yes. And so much of what I believe is the practice of unknowing in both creativity, spiritually becoming, is learning how to embrace the discomfort of not being in control, of learning how to relax those instincts of needing boundaries to open up for chaos, for what is unfolding, and to see it as opportunity, not as a problem. So can we talk about that for a minute? Why is it so damn hard for human beings to embrace messiness of not knowing or to, to consider reframing messiness or chaos as possibility and potential? Hmm. I, I would, I'll take a step back and say, I don't even know how to think about human beings as a category anymore. <laughs> okay. So they're, they're, already, <laughs> they're already nuanced dimensions to that and mm -hmm. cultural definitions and different, you know, many populations of humans, so-called humans may not even identify as humans. It, I, I would, I would want to limit this analysis to, you know, with some hesitation to modern yeah. humans, to, to those of us that are, gestating within the city that that again the difficulty is not the humans the difficulty is the assemblages mm. difficulty right just like i often just say that uh, trump is not racist <laughs> which is very controversial very <laughs> controversial thing to say because to racism those feelings and attitudes and the cognitive networks that imply and make those feelings possible to the human is to perpetuate imperialism, oh, yeah. right? It's the assemblage. He's part of a larger assemblage. Yeah. And even those of us that might say, I'm not racist, I have no racist bone in myself, could be part of racist assemblages as well. Mm. So, so it's, not, it, it's the same way I think about my son, who is... Um, at least in one definition on the autistic spectrum, a three-year-old, the gift of diagnosis is to name the problem. But the risk of diagnosis is to be incarcerated in the definition, oh. right? Or by the definition. So we're stuck there and we don't know where to go. We can gather resources together, but that definition and diagnosis comes with an entire universe of considerations, often not intelligible to us. One of them is that the problem is my son, mm. right? There's something wrong with him. Mm. It's, mm -hmm. it's his brain. It's so we have to fix him. It's you. Mm. Um, that kind of analysis often rules out the interplay, the, the complex, you know, trafficking mm. that, uh, of the environment at large, social, political, theological, all of that is involved. Right. So in a sense, it's not so much our difficulty as it is how difficulty itself is enlisting our bodies in in mattering. Right. Mm -hmm. Difficulty, this agency that is part of the city is enlisting us and using us and working with us um, to fuel the feelings or fuel itself or to become embodied. And so we don't know how to to do this. We don't know how to have conversations cross cosmologically we don't know how to meet someone in a different place especially now in our pixelated times right in our hyper tribalized pixelated times see what's happening in the united states with the republicans and um the democrats i was just listening to msnbc and rachel maddow recently and she said the republicans will never agree with the democrats even if it's to agree that wednesday comes before thursday and i i agree there's yeah. nothing, it's, it's just we'll never agree. And I think that's not a function of their bad people in the Republican Party mm -hmm. or their bad, bad people in the Democratic Party. It's the more than human agencies and forces, the patterns, you know, that is steering behavior in this way. So mm -hmm. I think it's difficult for us because we're in a culture, a globalizing culture 
but more than a culture, we are part of furniture. We eat in a particular way, we sleep in a particular way, and that might be part of the phenomenon of difficulty. Oh my God. <laughs> it is so profound. And to consider then that our waking up to, to use the title of your book, these wilds beyond our fences, beyond those fences, our, our ability to courageously lean on the fence until it gives way, that that somehow is our participation in helping to break out of these patterns. Yes. So I want to talk about that for a second because I want to empower the listeners of the show to consider that act, that radical, rebellious, revolutionary act of leaning on the fence until it gives way. I want to talk for a minute about racial justice because of these clear categorizations in the way that you said these systems, these patterns that are at play. And this past year in the United States, as you know, has caused a lot of white America to see itself just just a, a glimmer of white America seeing the mirror held up and saying, oh, we are participating in systemic racism. And here uh -huh. are these, you know, the myriad of ways of patterns and forces, as you named. And what has unfolded has been critical, messy, and it has been a reckoning that's nowhere near done or complete and will never be. But in the midst of it, I've also observed this tendency to talk about or latch onto determinism again. It's like the pattern is so strong that it we is. just move right back into it, even when we think our cause is just, such as racial you know, justice. So I want to read this quote in your book, because I want to talk about this for a second, where you talk about this opening up, as you say, an opening up the world of crazy dreams, ancestral connections, queer past, post-humanist performativity, and the connections of our bodies are making what we moderns do not see, because we're trapped in our castles of identity politics, which is what you were describing. Yeah. Here you say, no one is essentially black or white. We are all becoming black, white. Race is not biological determinism or linguistic absolutism, not fixed or arbitrary. It is emergent. It is not even a thing of human ancestry alone, since the human is a matter of the non-human becoming. You say race is a gerund. So I want to ask you about this. How can we think about racial justice in this alternative way as falling beyond the measures of white colonial subjugation, even in the limitations of language, what does living into racial justice and freedom look like beyond the fences? How can we, how can we actively participate in justice without falling back on that pattern that's so habitual for us mm -hmm. of creating, you know, good guys, bad guys, these people, like you said, it's the Republicans, they're the problem. You know, how do we, how do we not do that? Right. Um, I think it's really helpful the way you framed, you know, that we're in a very transformative period, you know, the messianic bursts of different kinds of awareness about, oh, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm implied in this, I'm complicit in this, I am involved in ways that escape my desires for purity or separation or convenient individuality, I'm already involved in this. Mm. Um, and so I think in the United States, especially, you, you see practices, and this is, this is not a practice that I'm used to where I come from, so it's a bit awkward for me, but interesting as an observer from an, a different part of the planet. Um, when I come to the West and I hear people speak their names in public, but identify the lands where they're you know, settler consciousness, like, mm -hmm. ah, this is the land. I'm part of the people who took this land away from indigenous people. And it's just, these are practices that are beautiful. They're mm -hmm. exploratory, they're experimental, they're ritualized, right? Mm -hmm. But there's always a risk. And like you named, there's always a risk. Every practice is a risk, mm -hmm. is risk-taking. There's always a risk in getting stuck in those practices or not being able to anticipate, which we're never, we were hardly ever able to do, not being able to anticipate all the tentacularities involved with adopting certain practices. Mm. For instance, even the practice of naming one's pronouns and implying or enforcing an atmosphere of compliance that everyone put your pronouns. It's a beautiful thing to notice and set celebrate diversity and, and gender as a gendering that is never complete and to move away from the gender binaries that we're used to. But at the same time, naming it, here we say in India, to name the color, 
you risk blinding the eye, mm. right? Mm. There's something violent. There's yeah. something violent about the reducing it to an, yet another word, yet another linguistic category, and and then enforcing that because you know this. You, we are not selves, we're selfings, right? Mm-hmm. We are ongoing becomings. And so if we think imminently instead of transcendently, um, then we start to notice that there's no way to describe ourselves that would ever adequately encompass experiences, becomings, and all that we are. Mm. So maybe the question that I ask is, how do we want to lean on the fence? How do we want to mm-hmm. ritualize, come to this moment and take a different path, you know, in the crossroads of multiple paths that might lead to something different instead of just performing this circle of convergence, you know, where we just go back in circles, right. you know, like the biodeterminism again, you know, there's this embodiment movement and what it seems to do is to reduce everything to the body. Oh, if you tweak your muscle this way, everything will be fine. And I, I know I'm, I'm exaggerating, but there's a way certain patterns become resilient, like you've adequately named. So what I try to do is to invite a, a compost activism, which I call post-activism, mm-hmm. right? That, that is not about solutions, but it's about staying with the trouble. And that might seem vague and poetic and ambivalent and atmospheric and non-practical at all. But I think there are ways we can ritualize questions and the ways we gather together that can help us articulate new and fugitive ways out of the plantation that restores uh, the sameness that we're used to. Um, And maybe that's part of the next question that I might uh, dwell with, but post-activism is what I'm struggling with. It's Mm. this large theoretical invitation with so much significance that is about noticing that how we respond to the crisis is often part of the crisis. Mm -hmm. And what do we do when we're stuck? What happens? when we're stuck is we must learn how to get lost. And getting lost is um, the volatile alliance between human and non-human forces that allows for newness and novelty to emerge out of a situation of apparent destruction. So how do we sit with destruction and chart our way from there? Not going forward, but awkward. How do we make research an invitation to get lost instead of a confirmation in anthropocentricity. How do we learn to listen? And it will not always be apparent to us. We're never all, we're not, we're not going to be woke, Brie, all of us. Like this, this is intergenerational work. This is a work that involves failure. It's just that maybe a generation, maybe ours, maybe another generation, and I don't want to think linearly because ancestry is also part of this generation, but by you know, for our conversational purposes, maybe this generation might be in tune with new forms of critique and new forms of dwelling with the, the tensions around racial justice and climate chaos and all of that. And maybe it's another generation, who knows? But I, I just feel that until we learn how to pull shit down, until mm. we learn how to, to stay with ghosts, mm. to meet and build new wild coalitions, right? I'm talking about not just human and human conversation or yet another conference or yet another podcast, but learn how to stray away in pagan animist errancy, away from the uh, linearity, you know, of our larger contemporary politics. We will continue to repeat what we're in right now. Amen. The sensation I have listening to you in that description of getting lost and to see, you know, not forward, but awkward, to move into that discomfort of unknowing as our political social, spiritual, revolutionary activism, it strikes such a deep chord. And I think in many ways, because the pandemic, the experience of the pandemic has been such a disruptor. And you've written about this quite a lot about the coronavirus as activism and the ways in which it has. And I say this cautiously because it's, you know, it's it's very taboo to say anything positive about the pandemic in any way, because it's been terrible. But the force of disruption that has so lovingly mirrored the dysfunction of how we operate or have been operating, especially in the West, 
There is no other way to see it than from a meta standpoint as one of those forces that you name that that we can ally ourselves with to reconsider everything we thought we knew about how to operate economically, how to function as nations and also personally, you know, the forced stop in so many people's lives, including my own, where it's like now I, you know, I'm currently unemployed, have no idea what's next. So the the embracing of the discomfort of being lost is very real. Yeah. I want to ask you about this, about the forces at play, particularly with the pandemic, and the ability to reframe what happens, as you said, the non-human forces, what happens with those non-human forces? How do we reframe? Because I think there's a powerful invitation for us there to reconsider when events happen beyond our control and we immediately label them as evil, bad, must be subjugated, must be contained, must be destroyed. What opportunity are we missing? Um, ruptures are not democratically or evenly distributed. Right when there's a fault line, mm-hmm. a fissure, uh, an earthquake, it disturbs. But the disturbance yeah. is not absolute, right, or universal. It occurs in some places. It, it sometimes maims and kills, and it might just be a slight tremor to other bodies, right? Just like the Hiroshima bomb blast mm-hmm. and explosion was more prominent for those who are more proximate to the site of explosion. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, even those of us who are seemingly far away, temporarily and geographically from that site in 1945 are still participating in it in some way. Carbon-14 in our bodies is a testament that the bomb is still exploding Mm -hmm. cancerously through our bodies. So in a sense, we are all entangled with a moment that is seemingly done with. Mm -hmm. In that same sense, uh, you know, the pandemic, as I like to say, exploded. And um, some of us, by some, I don't need, mean to conjure an ex, a predetermined exclusivity, right? An elite group of people who get it. But I, uh, you know, I feel that some of us will be more touched by this in particular ways than others. It might serve the function of reinforcing certain patterns, right? Mm-hmm. Especially when you get the nation state involved, mm-hmm. right? The nation mm-hmm. state will close its borders, try to reinforce its sovereignty, you know, don't come in here, you stay out, now you need a vaccine passport, all of that. While it may also have simultaneously a softening effect. So for instance, mothers might start to question, as they started to do in India, in the mainstream, why do we need to send our kids to school again? Mm-hmm. Where's that memo? Mm-hmm. Who can tell, so where's the memo? Did I, what, why do we do this? Why do we go to work? Why do we have mm-hmm. this long commute? Mm-hmm. So new questions become possible within sites of rupture. And the question then is what we do with it, right? What, what do we do with these questions? Again, the we here is not human beings. Right. I feel that the streaming of unknowing permeates furniture, permeates movement, permeates not a static collection of objects, but how they interrelate with each other and how they give birth to different kinds of possibilities. Right now, both of us are having this conversation but it's not Brie having a conversation with Bio. It's Brie plus Mike plus Pablo Picasso in the background plus this pixelated screen and both of us. Mm-hmm. We're intermingling in an entanglement and creating meaning together, mm-hmm. creating a different kind of pathway through the world, a possibility. Um, I feel in a sense that that is in some way a small microcosm of what's happening at large, that we are being confronted with um, the arrival of a God. And, you know, we can kill this God and get back to normal, Mm. or we could genuflect, we could Mm. prostrate ourselves, and we can learn to listen. And that ritual of doing something different with the arrival of something monstrous is actually, is not some artistic, flippant thing. It's historically premised, the the transatlantic slaves uh, made home across the Atlantic, right? They cried for home, and then they started to practice home as if home was where they were, Mm. like they had no choice. They could not board boats back. Some of them did, but most of them, the millions of them, decided to create new gods, so to speak, Mm. uh, right there and then to meet those moments, right? So the very 
wound of displacement gave birth to different realities, Rastafarianism, Candomblé, Santeria, Gayat. It gave birth to different realities. And I feel that's the way the world transforms. It's not by humans and our ingenuity, like, oh, let's do this. The doing and the capacity to even think that way is as a result of the territory, mm. you know, sighing and yawning and stretching itself. Mm. But I forget the original question you asked. No, no. Honestly, it doesn't matter because where we're going is this place I wanted I wanted to I wanted to pause here and take in this perspective from this view. Yeah. You know, I'm not prone to having mystical visions or, you know, uh, unfortunately I'm not Teresa of Avila, so I don't have ecstatic experiences on the daily, but I had a dream a couple years ago as I was studying Beatrice Bruteau, who I mentioned already, and she came to me in a dream and she couldn't use words to talk to me. So she showed me pictures. This was how we communicated in the dream. And so she showed me a gaping wound. And then she showed me a flower blooming and kept pointing at both of them and almost as if she wanted to overlay them, that the wound is the blooming, the blooming is the wound. Mm. It was as if she was trying to say, this is the birth of all reality possibility and to stop seeing them as separate, as one is beautiful, one is awful, you know, as you named this right. rupture. And I am deeply moved to consider, you know, if we could look at religion or, you know, the traditions we hail from, to see them as being vessels that gave us some type of spiritual technology, that there yeah. are some patterns here that are worth taking with us, even when we move beyond the maps. And one of those things for me is the idea of the wounded healer or the idea of seeing the, and not in a masochistic or um, disembodied way, but to recognize that the opening of the wound is the beginning of the birth and to see it in a feminine way. And so as I consider the gifts of my own traversing through spiritual maps, one of the deepest pieces of wisdom feels like this practice of learning to be okay in discomfort is concomitant with the ability to look at the rupture and not immediately try to colonize it, shut it down, kill it, yes. but rather to see yes. it with the eyes of awe and wonder, terror too, as you said, but no different than the terror one would encounter if I was swimming in the ocean and came upon a whale. That's terrifying, but it's also profound. Yeah. It's, it's the sense of coming into connection with or relationship with that other greater, bigger force. It's humbling. And so I want to know, like, what practices do you engage in that feel ritualistic in that way to help you continue to feel into, okay, I'm okay even when I'm uncomfortable. It's okay even when I don't know. Beautiful, beautiful sister. Um, I would say that the deepest and most potent crack that we surrounded as a classroom are our kids, right? It's the place of continuous learning, right? I grew up in a school society and I've never experienced kids in the close and personal and in your face way that we, my wife and I are experiencing our kids and it is a lot of challenges it's very challenging mm -hmm. right because sometimes you just want to say you know what let's just send them to school <laughs> <laughs> let's, just, let's just look for a school can i return this can and i return <laughs> can I, yeah i've actually said you know can i like is send there a back shelf? to maker <laughs> send back to the maker it's just like <sighs> and we're doing that all the time but that it's not like we're pathologizing school too and we formed a religion out of unschooling. Mm -hmm. But there is a working with our kids as, you know, very urgent presences. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not disposable. They're not outsourceable. They are, you know, they make demands on, on the world. I like to say all the time that um, we anticipated my daughter, as is quite evident in my writing. We didn't anticipate my son. <laughs> in a hundred ways, he's very unanticipated the way he came we're expecting a girl 
It was a boy. And it's, he just messed up all those plans. <laughs> all the plans are blueprints for how we, we were nothing. It's supposed to be two girls. It was in the nerd book and everything was quite clear, but it didn't happen that way. And yet I hear my wife telling me that I've learned more about myself mm. just by being with Kea than I've ever done in the years that I've been alive on earth. Mm. He's such a powerful, without words, especially mm. without words, he's such a powerful. So it, that is our everyday activism and mm. it's lived every day. It has no logo. It has no fancy name. It's just a refusal that comes with some seditious kind of fugitive hope that in meeting our children in this place of vulnerability and not knowing that something might emerge that is beyond our articulation, beyond language, beyond anything we can profess. Just like if you're a sci-fi nerd and you watch Man of Steel, the movie about Superman. Superman was the only one that wasn't schooled in the Kryptonian society. Everyone else went to school, genetic school. They were trained to be soldiers or trained to be leaders or something. And Superman was dragged out of that assemblage and transported to earth. They did not know where he would go. They did not know what to happen. And that's the not knowing that we're playing with, that not knowing is not the absence of knowing. It's the unfathomable, ecstatic, orgasmic abundance of knowing that defies language and cradles and makes language possible. Not knowing is the condition of possibility from whence knowing emerges. So we're trying to tap into a different place of power. And and that is our activism. That is is where we are. Hmm. It it makes me think of of music, Bio, because it's emerging. It's unfinished. It's vibrating. And it's almost as if we've taken a set of three or four notes and just play them over and over and over again, limiting the continuation of melody. And how you describe unknowing, not as an absence of melody, but actually the expansion of that simple three, four notes into a symphony, where all of the sudden, our capacity to receive other possibilities, other sounds, other instruments, other counter melodies, other harmonies, other rhythms, it, it, it becomes possible. It becomes possible to hear, receive, vibrate with more reality. Yeah. Um, and it's stunning. I mean, you know, the way you just described that, it's like, that's my, my deepest hope and heart. With both the show, but true of my life, is wanting to have the courage to fall through and invite us to do so communally, to fall through into that emergent possibility. Mm-hmm. But... I've had so many people tell me in response to sharing these instincts that to not have a map is to become nihilistically aimless waste of humanity and that it's just an exercise in some type of esoteric mumbo jumbo. It's just like that that they, you know, that they'll say the maps are what urge us onward. No, you need the maps. You have to have them. And as I've shared in the past year, I've really felt the last of my spiritual beliefs systems kind of go up in flames. Even as I kept thinking, I was like, now I'm beyond the maps because I'm progressively studying mysticism and contemplation and meditation and non-duality. <laughs> it's like, no. And then that was another map that I had to fall through. But I won't dress up the experience. It has been one of the hardest, darkest, also most beautiful, but lonely experiences of my life. And in the lostness, in that deepest night, there's been a complete reorientation. The the making, the act of creating, becoming, it hasn't emerged in me or it's not emerging in me because I'm trying to get somewhere anymore. It's mm-hmm. it's emerging as a devotion to to beauty, to unfinishedness, but also to possibility. And you know, I, I'm not saying beauty is like an aesthetic value determined externally. I'm saying this deep yeah, harmony right. that you described, yeah. that's what calls to me. But I'd be lying if I didn't say that I have moments of deep vertigo <laughs> where where I look, yeah, I look yeah. back and I'm like, oh man, it was really nice on that map because at least it had lines around it and I felt safe and I felt like I knew where I was. So sometimes I miss that now that I feel so lost. And 
to close this conversation, I want to ask, one, do you ever have vertigo? <laughs> and if you do, what helps you keep the courage of embracing being lost? Let me start responding to this by saying, first of all, that I am profoundly compelled by whatever forces are acting that are to be accounted when I think about myself as a self, um, that, that there's a lot more wealth in this place that we term not knowing mm. um, than knowing can even know. When I visualize that or, or want to embody that and just hold it for a little while before it slips away, I imagine the uh, discovery of the zombie bacteria you know, the deep biosphere by scientists a while ago and how they found that there's more, in a sense, in a carbon sense, there's more liveliness and strangeness and weirdness beneath the surface than on the surface. If we were to add all the bodies on the planet mm -hmm. and calculate their carbon content, there wouldn't be as much as the bodies beneath. Bodies that are thriving, you know, without sunlight, living and yet not their living is not a living that is linear it's also dying at the same time hence the, the term zombie bacteria they're querying our categories of thought mm. so when we bury bodies and we say those bodies are not living or not breathing or not knowing i wonder what we're reconfirming you know especially within light of this knowing or this realization that the ground is not a place of muteness mm. and inertia <laughs> that the ground is suddenly a place of festivity carnivalesque movements and queer body shapes that disturb the idea that when you're put into it six feet uh, or more you're taken to the afterlife the afterlife is no longer in the afterlife it's now in the middle <laughs> right so it, so it, it just feels wonderful and crazy all at once. And I spoke about desire as impossible because in spite of the fact that I, I feel drawn to this realization, to, I'm scared of boredom. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's my greatest fear. It's, it's part of the reason why I broke away from my faith and not in an absolute sense. No one abandons anything in an right. absolute exactly. way. Right? <laughs> right. Even though I may not explicitly identify their um, the world is too messy for a clean break from anything. Mm. So I, uh, I, I'm afraid of heaven. And I was saying that I'm, because it feels boring to me. Like just eternity, just doing stuff. Streets of gold. I mean, like what an awful image. My six-year-old, or when my son, my youngest son was six, he said to me, he says, I don't think they got heaven right because that just sounds terrible. <laughs> oh my, did you hear that? Yes. That, that is from, from the lips of a child. Exactly. Um, yes, it's, it doesn't sound like a livable space to me. It sounds very Trumpian. It sounds very ornate and vainglorious and it doesn't sound like the place i like to live in you know streets mm. of gold waking up every morning and give i'm not sure that's how it works but you get my point my drift if errancy is no longer possible mm. then life loses its liveliness right mm. Mm. it's the ability to err to stray away from calculated or calculatable paths that make for life and vitality and yet you know i do feel drawn to heaven I do feel drawn to the stability it offers. Right now, I'm theorizing about falling apart, about fugitives, about um, untold fugitivity, about favelas. I'm writing in my next book about slave ships and me and Brazil and all of that. And yet we want, my wife and I are planning to get a different place. You know, mm. we want to settle. We want to uh, move house. We want some sort of... Uh, so the vertigo is strong in this one, right? That's another way of noticing how none of this is about a pure, like a clean break into something. Yes. There isn't like, three is arrived. Now yes. I get it. Now I'm in this new arrangement. I finally have the spiritual apparatus. I have the tools of my toolkit. I'm there. I'm woke or whatever. I'm very afraid of that as well. That yes. even right now, we are part of assemblages of suffering. 
mm-hmm. even with our great progressive conversations, we're part of you know larger fields of suffering, just being mm-hmm. here together. The mic you might be using to voice yourself might have been made through the death of someone's bones. You exactly. see? So yeah. So none of this is clean. It's like a compost heap. It's messy. Mm-hmm. You know, we will find ways through the heap. We will dig through stuff. We will process, you know, stuff in new ways. Um, and this we is a thicker we. Um, but at the same time, none of it is going to be a categoricity of pureness. It's, mm. it's not, not going to be a, you know, a break from the embodied entanglement that we imply. Um, but I, I want to add this, you know, to the conversation that none of this is to discountenance the need for novelty today. Um, newness. Mm. Like we do need a break away from the sterilized representationalisms of today. There's an exhausting conversation, critique-based, that we don't know what to do with. It's signaled in identity politics, it's signaled in even critical race theory, which I definitely depend on and I need and I celebrate. But there's a point in which critiques bends over and starts to eat itself. And so because we're part of this field of knowing, we need the gift of non-knowing to break us out of it. And the gift of non-knowing is signaled to me or embodied by ruptures, cracks, fault lines. Those are the places of energetic bursts of new life or death, right? We need to create today. And to, to know, maybe there are clues as to where to lean on to help these shifts happen. Um, not that they're entirely dependent on us, but our kids, our mm. children. I think children are one of the ways that the world has encoded its own indeterminacy. And we pathologize children, even though we do it unknowingly and we do it lovingly by, by treating them as adults in the making. So yes. we put them in school, put them under a state-sponsored curriculum. I'm not saying any of this is bad. I'm just saying it has risks. of repeating the imperatives of the former Mm. and stabilizing the world that is recognizable. Whereas the imperative of now is to burst into the unrecognizable, to break away from social cohesion long enough that we find new kinds of solidarity Mm. with the strange, with the ghostly, with the ghastly, with the monstrous. But to do that is bold work. It's courageous work. And this courage itself is also a gift of the territory. Is a gift of the land, is a gift of ancestry. So wherever it is, wherever these ruptures and explosions are, let us surround them like classrooms. Let us gather around them. And maybe if we push them a little bit and they push us back in the technology of push and pull with our children, with grief, with anger, with things that we have learned to demonize and pathologize like failure and inadequacy, maybe those places might enable us to spring forth out of the plantation of the recognizable. I can't think of a better way to close this conversation than to just allow those words to to sit and sink into our bodies and beings to give birth to new possibilities. So not to hang on to them, but to allow them to fall like rain into the soil of our hearts and really take it in and... I want to say thank you for giving birth to these possibilities in language through your work, for inviting so many of us to have courage also to move beyond the comfort of those fences or those maps that we're so addicted to. And I hope to have a continuing conversation with you eventually as time allows, because there's so many more things that I want to dig into, but... um, I just want to say thank you, Bayo, so much for taking the time, for your wisdom, for your example, and for the invitation. Thank you, Bree. I really enjoyed myself, and it's a necessity. We have to speak again. So as we leave the maps behind, as we lean on the fences until they give way to the wilds beyond, What are some pieces of true North wisdom we can take with us from this conversation? First, the invitation. When life turns upside down, the invitation is to get lost. We must allow ourselves to get lost. We must seek being lost. Because there is something about traversing into the unknown that is the beginning of everything we don't know. 
and everything that could be. Second, to remember and be membered to the more than human forces around us, we are not in this alone. If you're into woo and believe in ancestral presence, there is that force. There is also the presence of the more than human community of this planet. To think that we're somehow isolated and separate from the context in which we live is arrogant. And lastly, go awkward. Be awkward. Queer your categories that you're holding on to. Let's have courage together to reconsider the frames that we're unknowingly and knowingly clinging to. Take heart, be encouraged by this conversation as I've been. And for the love of all that's holy, go buy Bio's book and read it. <laughs> Take your time with it. You can also follow his work at bioacomolafe.net. It will be in the show notes. That's it for this episode. If you found this conversation helpful or meaningful, please consider rating the show or share it with a friend. You can also join the community of patrons who make this podcast possible. To learn more or for some resources on this path of creative possibility, visit unknowing.org. This music was brought to you by Avila, band duo that I'm a part of. You can find this song. It's called Some Understanding download it wherever you get your music and remember as Rilke says be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart try to love the questions themselves I'm trying to